0: From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Rev. Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from New York City.
1: And religious freedom is this umbrella that is being used as a weapon against us when it really needs to be something that can be used to protect us.
0: April is Sikh Awareness and Appreciation Month, chosen in part because of one of the most important holidays in the Sikh faith, Vaisakhi. Visaki commemorates the founding of the Sikh faith and is also the start of the Punjabi New Year. On this week's show, I'm excited to learn more with
2: Anisha Singh, executive director of the Sikh coalition. And so often, you know, religious language can really be used as a weapon or just sort of a tool of control. I'm not necessarily content to cede some of these terms to decay or to abuse. John Ward is a political journalist
0: who grew up at the heart of American Evangelical Christianity, and his entire worldview and perception of America was shaped by that background. I had the good fortune of watching John work when he was the politics reporter for the Huffington Post when I was the religion editor. John Ward continues to be one of the most respected political reporters today and has just published a moving personal book, "Testimony." inside the evangelical movement that failed a generation. And he'll be with us here with his insights. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. Every week, I am in conversation with the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. Please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest, Anisha Singh is a powerhouse leader, organizer, and activist. An attorney, she led impactful campaigns while a senior director at the Center for American Progress, and later led the Courts and Democracy Program at Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Today, Anisha is executive director of the Sikh Coalition, the largest Sikh civil rights organization in the United States. Anisha, it's great to have you with us on Sick Awareness Month, and welcome to State of Belief Radio.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Paul, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. I really appreciate it.
0: So I want to know what's going on for Sick Awareness Month. This is an exciting opportunity for those of us who maybe don't have as much familiarity with the sick people and the sick religion to learn about this really important part of our nation and to figure out ways to to learn more in their own communities. so let's talk first like what's going on with sick awareness month
1: yes and a great time for for me to be on the show because i think this is such a critical month and just such a special time for the sick community um Sick Awareness and Appreciation Month. Um, it, it Generally, we have it take place during the month that uh, the Saki happens. And the Saki is one of the most significant days on the sick calendar. It actually marks the first day um, of the month of the Sac, and it typically falls on either April 13th or 14th. It really is the day in the year 1699, where the 10th uh, guru formally declared the Panth, which basically means the community of initiated six, um, giving us the sense of identity that continues to this day. So you know, it's like this spiritual significance, um, but it's also celebrated as a harvest festival across South Asia, Asia, and especially in the Punjab region. Um, so generally here in the United States, you'll see Sikhs celebrating the Saki by visiting their local gudwara, uh, which is the house of worship, um, to meditate, to come together as a community, to partake in langar, which is uh, a free community meal prepared and served at all gurdwaras by volunteers. Um, and then many Gurdwaras also uh, do additional activities such as Vaisakhi parades. They have singing and, and dancing and distribution, again, of Lunger. And just it's just a beautiful time. And so when we do the Sikh Awareness and Appreciation Month, um, we like to do it around that. Um, and then across the nation, you'll see proclamations and resolutions reoccurring as a piece of civic engagement um, that we do at the Sikh Coalition. Um, and then we engage uh, community members uh, to reach out to their state and local elected officials and raise awareness around Sikhism, and it's just a really great way to get community members engaged there civically um, to yeah. make sure that, that they're reaching out to their elected officials.
0: That's, I think, it's just wonderful, and it's also I, I want to just take a moment with Langar because, like, not everybody quite understands you. You kind of said, you know, we where where it's a, a feeding of a free meal. So I, my first real experience with Longar happened years ago at the Parliament of the World's Religions. And it said, you know, join the Sikh community where they provide, uh, Longar for, you know, for the, for the entire, um, Parliament, which is thousands and thousands of people. I was like, do we need a special invitation? Is this a VIP invitation? And no, they meant everybody. And so it was literally the sick community was, was offering free. Food, delicious food, um, to thousands of people from all over the world, from all different traditions, everyone welcome. It was actually incredibly moving. And they were, they were kind of murmuring during it. And I said, What are they saying? And they said, Oh, they're praying because this is actually an act of devotion to feed other people, to, to welcome other people. You can correct me if I have that slightly wrong, but at, at the time, I was just so moved by this, um, this expression of faith that also involved a welcoming and a, just a fundamental human need, which is feeding one another.
1: Absolutely. It's it's one of the things that I find so beautiful about Sikhi. Um Sikhi, you know, was founded and continues to be centered around this concept of Seva, which is selfless service, serving others. And it's so critical to our religion, our way of life, and langar is a huge part of that. Um, you know, you'll see in gurdwaras across the country, doors are open. Um, and if you ever need a meal, you'll, you can find one at a gurdwara. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, in uh, Amritsar, uh, you'll see in India and South Asia, um, Punjab, Siri, Harmandir, Saab, um, they feed over 50,000 people a day longer. Um, and just, you know, anyone is welcome. And it's like this machine, right? Like this well oiled machine, like we, we just know how to do it. Um, it's so we'll incredible.
0: Whether- I, I've been there by the way, I went to Mr. Uh, and was able to like really be there and bathe in the water. And it was just, you know, it's, that it's so, so the sick tradition is really, um, it's one of the, really the, one of the great world. Religions, not that there's like a hierarchy of what is great or not, but it's a it's a. It, how many um, adherents does it have around the world? And then maybe you can talk a little bit about um, the Sikh uh, history in the United States.
1: Absolutely. So the Sikhism is actually the fifth largest religion in the world, um, and so it's it's a major religion. Um, And here in the United States, there are roughly 500,006 with populations definitely concentrated on the East and West Coast, um, but uh, with growing across the nation. Um, There are roughly, I would say, 300 uh, gurdwaras in the United States. And the first gurdwara was actually in Stockton, uh, California in 1912. Um, Mm. And and the reason, you know, six, you know, kind of immigrated here, one of the the major reasons, We saw that in in West Coast in the late 1800s was immigrants who were farmers, right? We saw the fields of California, Central Valley, and the fields where they previously lived and worked in Punjab were very similar. So they were able to come here, um, become farmers. Other Sikh immigrants played a major role in building the uh, railroads. Um, and so we have that history in this country like so many other communities do here. And we have a lot of firsts that we're really proud of too. Right, The first Asian American congressman happened to be a Sikh who was elected to office in 1957, Dilip Singh Sand. Um, the inventor of fiber optics was a sick American. As as the largest peach grower in the United States, um, so we're very much integral and and part of the America American fabric, right? And and backbone with farmers, drivers, engineers, construction workers, uh, across all um, uh, pieces of society. And and what's happened is, you know, and you know, I think this is important to name is nine eleven really brought the Sikh community to a, a very interesting place of mourning with the community, mourning with America as Americans as a part of the fabric of this nation, but then also suddenly being targeted for hate and anti-Muslim you know Muslim bias because of the way we looked. And it, it just really impacted our community and, and reshaped the way we engage in this work. And and actually, the Sikh coalition was founded right after 9-11 for that exact reason to really address some of that hate. Mm.
0: There's just terrible stories about Sikh Americans. The story um, that Valerie Coor has certainly talked about and many others, you know, of the fellow who owned a gas station who was actually raising money in support of the victims of 9-11 and was, was shot and killed. By yes,
1: Singh thee, so And that that's just
0: one of the stories. And actually, on the day that we're recording this, we're remembering two years ago there were sick Americans who died in a shooting in, I think, Indianapolis. And then of course I'm from Wisconsin and it's really this manifestation of hate and a very old, terrible Sinful, I'll say, as a Baptist minister, part of an American history that targets people who look differently, as if we all aren't wonderful creations from God, or if you don't believe in God, just wonderful creations and targeted. And it's just part of the reason I think that the Sick Awareness and Appreciation Month is, is that we have to recognize we are all Americans together, and the targeting of sick Americans is just... Terrible. And uh, so I, I also want to lift up all the loss in Indianapolis and certainly in Wisconsin.
1: Thank you so much. We, we appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, we just marked the second anniversary, as you mentioned, in Indianapolis at the heels of Asaki, right? It's supposed to be a festive, happy uh, celebration, but we're also remembering and humbled by the truth of, of where we are as a nation and the work that we still have to do to really combat hate and all the pieces that come with that the mental health the gun violence the you know all of the pieces that right. we're reckoning with as a country right now there's just so much and i'm really grateful to be able to lead an organization that is working across all spaces to make sure we're approaching this comprehensively right and i, I we have a legal team that gets over 200 cases a year that come our way, clients just coming our way because of bullying, employment discrimination, hate incidents, hate speech, right? Everything in between. We have an advocacy team constantly trying to make sure that our narrative and our legislation around anti-hate initiatives, education, et cetera, are are being advanced. We have an education team, and and I really want to emphasize that work because – If you don't educate folks on the front end, if you don't do that proactive work, we're not going to reach a place as a country to really change the narrative, right? To really make sure that we're doing that proactive engagement as communities to come together and respect one another and understand one another. And so um, one of the things I really like to talk about that I think is... um, so interesting that the sick coalition does so well is for the last 15 years in 15 different states we've been able to get sickie added to school curriculum and standards what that means is kids that are young in school they're learning about sickism um, and and if we can get the funding to do that if we can get those standards passed across the nation we're really creating that that space um so we've been uh, 15 for 15 and at the same time, you have this anti-critical race theory conversation happening oh. in this country that is trying to take away our ability to to really teach the history of every community in this country um, in an authentic way. And we are here fighting every day. Yeah,
0: we just had um, a fellow from North Florida who runs the Interfaith Center at, at a university there. And his interfaith work is under the DEI mantle, and DEI is being dismantled, and so all of the work about teaching about difference and religious difference is being dismantled, as if ignorance is a virtue. We're, we're in a very difficult moment and it makes the, the work of the Sikh coalition and all of your partners. And I hope you'll view Interfaith Alliance as one of those partners. Um, it just makes, it, it makes it so important that we recognize that, just as you said, there's so much America has to be thankful and grateful for, to the Sikh community for all of the contributions and all the contributions that are being made today. I mean, it's just countless. And, and, uh, you know, I think of, my time at Princeton University and um, the sick students and what they brought to the fiber of the vibrancy of that community, whether it's in cultural things or ethical considerations or religious like pluralism and expanding our minds, it's such a gift. What are like two or three things about the Sikh religion as far as the worldview that you might be able to share with us for people who just are like, well, what do they really believe? We don't want to assume that it's, you know, oh, we all believe the same thing. So there's some, there's something unique about Sikhism that I've been able to appreciate.
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, the top two, you know, things that resonate with me personally as a, as a practicing Sikh is Equality and Seva. So I mentioned Seva earlier, being selfless service, community service. I think um, so many of us who practice Siki, we really take that to heart, right? Um, whether it's putting a fifth of your your income into donations, or it's uh, you know a significant amount of your time towards community service, or any anything in between, you see that reflected throughout the community, and that's why you see these. Sikhs giving longer on the streets when, you know, the, the tragedies are happening in, in Syria and, and Turkey or elsewhere, you, you'll see Sikhs kind of show up and, and do that work. And so I think Seva is a, a really big piece and such an instrumental and important one, especially when we're thinking about interfaith, alliance, community, solidarity, right? Um, and then the other is equality. So um, uh, the founder of Sikhism was very clear Guru Nanak that equality was key. Um, so, no caste systems, uh, gender equality, really empowering the entire community that it's not about those differences, right? It's about the way you approach God, the way you think of God, your relationship to God and your relationship to service. And so that is, I think, beautiful as well, because as as we do this work, right, on the advocacy side or legal side or anything in between, that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for right. that equality. We're fighting for that recognition. And I think that's another beautiful part of, of the religion that, that I, I hold close. Yeah,
0: that, that's just, just wonderful. So one of the things that Interfaith Alliance, and I I know you're thinking about this too, that we're just, we're seeing a sort of a coalescence around an identity and a political ideology that has been named Christian nationalism or white Christian nationalism. And, you know, to me, this is, this is something that is a kind of an existential threat for our democracy. How do you view the, um, the, the way that the Sikh coalition and and you personally view this rising ideology and what are ways that you can imagine, um, really organizing against it or fighting back or uh, standing up however you want to phrase it um, to to ensure that this this kind of right now ascendant ideology doesn't prevail uh, and really jeopardize our democracy?
1: Absolutely. You know, we tend to approach this problem through the lens of anti hate, right? Because the ideologies that drive it, whether it's racism or white nationalism, and the ideologies that tend to be intertwined with it, whether it's misogyny or anti-Asian sentiment, anti-Black racism, whatever it is, like a, a large part of what we try to do here at the Sikh Coalition is, is really think of this as an anti-Sikh hate lens. And, and so we focus on improvements to hate crimes laws, whether it's tracking, prevention, responses, inclusion of a wide range of marginalized communities, making sure we're at the table um, and so, you know, you, you and I just talked about this earlier. We were talking about anti-CRT. All of these things contribute to that anti-hate. If we're if we're compounding ignorance, if we're compounding the lack of narrative, if we're compounding not coming together as communities and having those dialogues. We're creating that atmosphere of um, isolation of anti-hate. Um, and and to your point, right. Christian nationalism. So we're not learning from one another. We're really isolating and creating these 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 um, extremist views that then compound and create that create that dangerous, uh, I would say, environment for for communities like ours. Um, and then, you know, when we were we were just in August um, uh, commemorating the anniversary of the Oak Creek shooting, which you also alluded to earlier. But that's a that's a prime example, right? It was a white nationalist who came into a a good war during during service and 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 killed um, members of our community and a community that now won't be you know won't be whole um, and and we were thinking about it as we were looking at the ten year anniversary and looking at the nation as a whole and one of the questions I had is you know we're at a point in this country a reckoning point where we either figure out this narrative really come together and and make change or or we're in trouble right like we're really noticing that that in the last 10 years since oak creek happened nothing has changed our elected officials have not done anything to make it better the narrative has not shifted we're saying the same thing we have thoughts and prayers We're, you know we're turning a blind eye when we need to be paying more attention and diving deeper we're isolating ourselves on social media when we need to be sitting at the table and having conversation like all of this is happening Um, And we're really at a point where we need to take that step back and recognize that. And I think that's critically important when we're thinking about Christian nationalism or any extremism, right, that's occurring right now um, that just contributes to anti-hate sentiment in this country.
0: Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, the time is now. And, you know, I think the more the more that we can insist on you know, a different vision for America and just and just like cast this vision and make the welcome and insist that, no, this is not a Christian nation. It it has to be a nation for everyone Or it isn't the nation that I want to be in. And so this is, you know, this is really, really important work. It's great for the Sikh Coalition to be so present. And uh, I encourage everyone to find the Sikh Coalition, find a local Sikh uh, organization. You will find it very welcoming and find ways to engage um, the religious diversity wherever you live uh, across the country. You come at this from kind of an organizing but also legal background. You're like a rock star. I mean, you've kind of done everything. You worked at the Center for American Progress. You've worked at Planned Parenthood. You've, you have a law degree. You're like, How does all of that come together as the ED of Sick Coalition today?
1: I love this question because each job I've held has been so uniquely different, but at the same time kind of led to the other. And I often say I'm an attorney turned organizer, and I really turned into an organizer out of necessity, right? I was an attorney practicing, you know, a practicing attorney. And then I feel like I was called into organizing because of the moment we were in, you know, speaking to everything we talked about, the, the rise in, in, anti-Muslim bigotry that was occurring during, you know, 2015, 2016, and and everything since then. Um, And that's kind of shaped my trajectory. But what I've noticed from place to place I've gone is we've allowed a narrative that should have been ours and should have stayed ours um, be hijacked. Um, And that's the religious freedom argument, Mm. right? Religious Mm. freedom. When we think about religious freedom, it is supposed to mean that a sick man who has his articles of faith, including a beard and a turban, can walk into a place of employment and get a job and get accommodations if necessary. But what we see happen, right, is we have employers across the board, whether we're talking about the military, the largest employer in the United States, or we're talking about, you know, a small bomb and pop shop who will look at those articles of faith and either reject them, terminate them or give them um, requirements like shave your beard or or remove your turban. So that's what religious freedom should look like, right? Like we're able to use Rifra and other laws to really protect situations like that. What has happened is the narrative has shifted to religious freedom means that I as an individual or as an employer can tell you that you cannot have an abortion. Um, I can tell this LGBT couple that they cannot have a cake um, and we have really seen this narrative completely shift, you know, in every way. And if you look at my history, right, like I worked at Planned Parenthood on courts, that's so critically important. The nominees that we put into our courts are so critically important to deciding the cases that then create that narrative. When you look at my work at Center for American Progress, right, we, again, are talking about organizing folks around issues that all intersect so when we're talking about abortion rights or we're talking about lgbt rights or we're talking about gun violence prevention it all intersects and it really does come together in so many ways, and religious freedom is this umbrella that is being used as a weapon against us um, when it really needs to be something that can be used to protect us. Uh, and
0: amen, you are preaching the sermon that I also love to preach, and you are preaching it better than I've ever done. It is exactly right. And you know, I was talking to Rachel Lasser who at Americans Uniting, and she said she hosted. A big group of Stanford students, and she said, What do you think of when I say I'm religious freedom? Every one of them said, Oh, um, ability not to serve uh, LGBTQ people. That's what religious freedom has been reduced to. And I say reduced.
1: Infuriating. Isn't that
0: shocking? Yeah. And I agree, somehow. We lost the narrative, and we're we're going to take it back. I mean, we absolutely are going to take it back that civil rights and religious freedom can go hand in hand, and we have to be able to exercise our faith without diminishing others. This seems so clear, and uh, I think the way you framed it is exactly right. It is a narrative problem, and frankly— Young people are not gonna stand for this kind of stuff. They're, they're like, oh, religion does that. Religion restricts ability to make choices about my body. Religion makes, you know, makes it impossible for my friend or myself who is, uh, LGBTQ identified. To not have a full free life in this country. Oh, I don't want to have anything to do with religion. This is a losing. Exactly. It's a, it's a terrible, terrible, um, advent of, um, of legal strategy. And unfortunately, we, we have a Supreme Court that I think is, is very much going to uphold this. So, so our best bet is exactly what you've been saying, the narrative of it. Just because maybe that the Supreme Court is going to let people do it doesn't mean people should do it. We have to be really, really clear about
1: that. Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) I'll also say we we have that obligation, right, as interfaith organizations and groups doing this work. It's our obligation to really take that narrative back because we're in the weeds. We see that work. We see how beautiful religious freedom can be when it is applied correctly. And really just lifting those stories, lifting those cases is what's going to, I think, change that narrative and make people realize that this is the way it's supposed to be interpreted.
0: Exactly. I mean, you know, for instance, the Sikh coalition brought that really important case to this uh, about the, um, you know, the armed forces, specifically the Marine Corps, which I think was the last um, force that w- still allowed discrimination against, you're going to correct me, but I, I think it was the last one. And um, and Interfaith Alliance uh, provided uh, support for that Case and that is a perfect case of religious freedom. We, frankly, we need sick people in our armed forces because they're volunteering to be part of a force that could protect America, and and this should be welcome. And they should be welcome in all of who they are. And um, and so. A, the, any restrictions should be. We should view that as you know an obligation, an American obligation, um, to get rid of any restrictions and of the ability of the sick community or any community to participate in one of the foundational structures of American life. So that is a perfect use of religious freedom, as you say, as opposed to, oh, I don't want to serve you. Which is, just seems like, you know, goes directly against what, you know, it's, it's the fraying of the fabric of America. And that's what I really, it really bothers me is the idea that we can just say, oh, I don't want to serve you because of my faith. It just frays that community. It just splits the community apart. And, and that cannot be viewed as a public good.
1: Absolutely. Using faith as a weapon is is an incredibly dangerous, yeah, incredibly dangerous tool and narrative to be sharing.
0: Yeah. So I like to ask every guest this question, which I hope you'll agree to answer. What gives you hope right now?
1: I would say two things. One is the young people. (laughs) Um, And I'm sure you can agree here. Like They're not taking it um, their generation has seen it all. They are going through some of the the most extremist, um, devastating news cycles that we've seen, and they are resilient and, and ready to fight. And I think one of the main reasons we constantly see Um, restrictions on voting rights, especially when it comes to voting age and all of that is because that threat is real, right? They're going to (laughs) vote. They're going to show up. They're going to make sure their voices are heard. So the young people, they give me hope. You know, when I was at Center for American Progress, I was the senior organizing director for Generation Progress. And just it gave me life just being amongst young people and just hearing how passionate they were, ready to ready to go. And and we're going to continue to see that. So really just handing that torch and making sure that next generation is ready. Like at the sick coalition, we're constantly talking about community engagement and community empowerment, but especially when we're thinking of that next generation. So that's one I would say our young people. I think the second is um, just the, the amount of dialogue we're able to have right now when it comes to um, building alliances, um, you know, We, I worked again, Center for American Progress, Planned Parenthood, as you mentioned, but I think because of everything that has accumulated over the last five to 10 years in the organizing space, especially in progressive um, circles, the way we've been able to put coalitions together, partnerships together, really, really intersectionally come together where, again, right, like we have abortion rights group talking to LGBT groups who are talking to GBP groups who are talking to faith organizations and faith leaders are now leaders of some of those spaces, that's just something we haven't seen in so long and so critically important for us to have the right conversations and create the right policies that are needed. Because if you do them in silos, we're not going to get as far as when we do it together. And so I think just seeing that as an organizer, as someone who's been in these spaces uh, evolve over the last five to 10 years, I think also gives me hope that we're headed in the right direction in terms of creating that force that is needed to fight some of what we're, what we're seeing across the country
0: well i love that answer and i i hope that you will always consider interfaith alliance a great partner uh as an organization and me personally we are eager to show up uh in concert with you and so many other people i i love your answer because it also you know it really reflects what i'm seeing as well and um and it's it's lovely when you said young people i think it's so great that so many of my guests have started with young people, as opposed to, for a while, it was like everybody was bemoaning, oh, the young generation, they're so blah, blah, blah. And I was like, that's not my experience. And, and, and I think now we're waking up to actually the young generation has so much to offer, so much energy, so much, um, just insistence on, on creating the country that they want to live in. I think that it's a very positive sign. So I just really appreciate that answer.
1: Of course. And thank you so much, Paul, for you know your partnership, um, your leadership in in helping drive that narrative. Shows like this really create that space for us to to continue this work.
0: Thanesha Singh is the executive director of the Sikh Coalition, the largest Sikh civil rights organization in the United States. As we celebrate Sikh Awareness and Appreciation Month, Anisha, thank you so much for being with us today on State of Belief Radio.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Up next, journalist John Ward, author of the brand new book, Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews, and transcripts as well as an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, where religion and democracy meet. John Ward grew up in the insular world of evangelical Christianity, a world that was expanded when he began his successful career as a political journalist. He is chief national correspondent at Yahoo News, hosts the Long Game podcast, and is the author of Camelot's End, Kennedy versus Carter and the Fight that Broke the Democratic Party. Now he shares his experiences and his insights in a new book titled Testimony inside the evangelical movement that failed a generation. John, welcome to the show.
2: Paul, thank you so much for that introduction. It's great to be here.
0: Let me just say I was rapt reading this book. I, you know, wrapped, rapt, R A P T. I was just you know hanging on every word because it was so personal. And I don't think that can be easy, but the name of the book testimony really means something to you so let's start with that first part of the title testimony what does this book mean to you coming from your background
2: yeah you know you're you're bringing something out with the way you ask that question that has not come up yet in the interviews i've done you're emphasizing the personal nature of this and a lot of t- a lot of people have asked me about the title and we've talked about the ways that a testimony in church is when somebody gets up, stands up in a service or at a Bible study and talks about the challenges they've had in their life and the ways that they've relied on God to get through it. But what I'm thinking of as you ask the question the way you did is just how for better or for worse, I think through a combination of DNA and the way I was formed by the church culture that, you know, alchemy, I have always been a pretty straightforward person and erred on the side of disclosure and transparency, very lacking in guile. And I don't really say that to boast. Um, I just don't really even know how <laughs> to be guileful. You know, when I was dating, or not even dating my wife, when I was pursuing her, she kept me at bay for several months. And one of my good friends told me, just you know, play a little hard to get and, uh, and see if she comes around. And I was like, that's just not my MO. I don't know any other way than to go kind <laughs> of straight at it and put my cards on the table. Ironically enough, I guess, it was when I started to kind of decide maybe I'm going to move on that she did, <laughs> she did come around but it wasn't I wasn't playing a game
0: you know so so tell me what testimony means
2: well i mean testimony is my story i mean a testimony yeah. is my uh, my story of growing i mean the the word itself as i said has that connotation of somebody talking about their faith journey or the ways that they've faced challenges so that's sort of its specific meaning, and for me, it's a story of growing up inside the church, and then a very, I would say, a very long process of disentangling, uh, you know, the the chaff from the wheat, so to speak, mm. to use a biblical mm. uh, yeah. reference.
0: Yeah, it's really personal, and I what I really appreciated about it is, you know, how relentlessly honest. You tried to be throughout the entire book with yourself, with what you were feeling, with how you were viewing Mm -hmm. the world. But then you have the second part of the title, which is Inside the Evangelical Movement that Failed a Generation. And so I guess I want to ask you, like, when you talk about an evangelical movement that failed a generation, do you consider yourself part of that generation that was failed? Yeah, I do.
2: Um, I, I think the particular you know, context or time that we're talking about is, you know, my parents' generation that came out of the Jesus movement in the 70s and then built churches over the next 10 to 20 years. I'm um, the child of that generation. And I one of my sort of fundamental, I would say, claims or assertions is that there was something quite, you know, moving and and real and full of potential that came out of the Jesus movement, a real sincere, heartfelt time. And I'm basically trying to unpack how I think the potential was was wasted or did not come to anywhere near the fruition that it could have come to and diverted and exploited, essentially.
0: Mm. Mm. It's a powerful reminder. And the Jesus movement actually was quite beautiful. My my husband, mm-hmm. uh, Brad Gooch, just wrote a book about the artist Keith Haring. And Keith Haring spent mm-hmm. a couple years really being part of the Jesus movement. He was really compelled by it. And then it, you know, it kind of mm-hmm. fell away. And But there was an invitation to something greater than yourself, and also an invitation to okay. imagine a world that could be different and be a part of it. And then you kind of chronicle in ways that I want to say like as someone who, you know, studied religion, who was a Christian all my life, this history was something that I hadn't quite read before. And it, for our listeners, I again, we're talking about this book by John Ward Testimony Inside the Evangelical Movement that Failed a Generation. I really recommend it in part because it's such a beautifully told story, but in part because it introduces you into a history of America that you might not know. And that's how I felt. And I felt it made me feel like, wow, Mm -hmm. you and I could have been living in the same city and you would have been in your part and I would have been in my part. And we never would have crossed because of the way Mm -hmm. different kinds of Christianity didn't talk to each other in in a pretty major way. And that was like by intention, especially the Mm -hmm. way you were raised, which was really like, let's be safe. Let's keep the outside at bay. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can talk a little bit about what childhood felt like and what your perceptions of your community were and what America was growing up in the particular Christian evangelical tradition that you grew up in.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm really interested in this question of how representative my story is. I mean, when I went on uh, another show, uh, Hugh Hewitt, who's, you know, pretty conservative, uh, he really questioned that and and asserted that it's not representative. Um, you know i think it's it's uh it's pretty easy to point out that there's 20 million million non-denominational christians now as of a 2020 study and um, you know that was the world i grew up in so i think i don't think it's hard to really argue that my experience is um pretty common in some ways but there are particularities to it i think the other thing that makes it representative of a larger experience is the fact that our church was charismatic slash Pentecostal for the first 20 years or so and grew out of the Hal Lindsey late great planet Earth sort of sort of influence in the 70s and then became part of the new Calvinist movement. So that's sort of the big picture there. In terms of my childhood experience, you know, I went to church all the time as a child. It was really all I knew. I went to an elementary school that was run by the church. You know, we didn't interact with people outside our church, much less from denominations or mainline congregations. I mean, there was really maybe stratification of people who were less righteous than us. And and again, this is the downside of people who are young having a really dramatic experience and then sort of turning their back on institutional memory, tradition, history, all of those things is you you don't have anybody to check you and say, uh, you don't know everything. But we thought of people outside of our congregation and our group of churches as lesser Christians or maybe even not Christians, to say nothing of, of how we kind of look down on people who are not Christians. Yeah.
0: It was very intentional, like by intention and and trying to create something in this world, but not of this world. You know, and, and I think that there, mm-hmm. yeah. you just said something that that reminded me in another part of the book is is just like there was no sense when you discovered an aesthetic of other faith traditions and aste- that there was no like aesthetic religion in some ways. All the churches were kind of devoid of any sort of like color or certainly no iconography. And, and it just, you know, the kind of right. erasure of, of things that might connect you to t- some sort of broader history. It's so interesting. And I think it's it's especially interesting to us right now because we're trying to figure out like, What is the role specifically of different religious traditions coming together and coming in contact with each other? And also specifically, I think there's a history that you tell of how your family became kind of very anti-abortion, but that was kind of the extent of your political engagement. You based your decisions about what candidates mattered purely on abortion. And there wasn't much consideration of other moral issues around certainly poverty and certainly not racism or anything like that. So that's a really interesting history as well Is like, we're going to focus on this one issue and, all of our political, you know, understanding will be based on
2: that. Yeah, and your point about the iconography really goes to one of the f- other foundational things to understand about certainly the way our church operated the first twenty years, which I think continues to influence a lot of evangelicalism. And it was the Jesus movement grounded us in the pursuit of euphoric emotional experience, and I think that kind of drives you to a quasi gnostic sort of faith especially if you also believe in dispensationalism which Mm -hmm. views the physical world as basically kindling but it drives you also into a a more interior religion hyper individualistic and then the rejection of the iconography and the liturgy is very much part of that turning away from what was seen as dead religion in the mainline congregations uh, and in catholicism so You know, when it comes to political engagement, we were, as you said, you know, just entirely focused on abortion. But I think what goes hand in hand with that is, again, to that idea of thinking as the here and now, the physical world as kindling because of the dispensational, you know, leaning. That is also part of what pushes people to think of politics as beneath them or dirty, or something that is not worth the Christian's time, because it is both temporal and it is messy. And the temporality is not of the kingdom of God. And the messiness is really hard to engage with if you're focused on really just being as pure as possible and on achieving this euphoric religion. There are so many Mm. interwining strands here. And and part of the challenge of the book was telling a story that was chronological and first-person in a lot lot of ways. Not all of the story is first-person, but a lot of it is. And then zooming out to try to unpack the ways that culture and history shaped me and have shaped Evangelical political engagement. And I think that's really important because I see a lot of demonization, just writ large in political discussion and culture. And I think problem solving actually requires us to go the other direction to analyzing culture, analyzing systems, analyzing incentive structures, history, all of those things.
0: Mm. One of the things that you just mentioned, which shows up a lot in the book, is is gnosticism. You use that term like it was like kind of yeah. you had to kind of know. You, you had there's some people who know, and we had Jeff Charlotte on the show, and his his book, The Undertow, very much leans into this idea of gnosticism that like if you have eyes to see, you see it. Yeah, and that's really yeah. I mean the way the way he understands it is is around the kind of the cult the spiritual cult of kind of Trumpism or all that surrounds Trumpism now, which is like ongoing, like you can't see it because you're not able to see. (laughs) And Gnosticism is, is very difficult in that way because there's no, you can't use facts to dispel Gnostic belief, especially even particularly when it has a political ramification. It's very hard to imagine how to counteract this. And so I, I just find that you, you know, two people who are so smart and who are also journalists um, or, or tell stories uh, for a living, have identified Gnosticism as present in kind of the evangelical movement that is connected with a mm. political drive. Feels very interesting to me.
2: It really does. Um, I've followed Jeff's work for a long time. I actually back almost 20 years ago thought he and others were overstating the threat of theocracy and Rush Dooney, only to see some of that reconstructionism really resurfacing now. You know, it's worth pointing it out. I, I, I didn't read Jeff's book before, you know, writing my book. I'm gonna go buy it as soon as we're done with this interview though. And cause I really wanna learn more about that. And I think I have focused more in terms of the Gnostic element on the disdain for the embodiment of the faith. But I think that element that you're talking about that Jeff focuses on this issue of secret knowledge is something that I have not focused on as much. But as you're talking, it it makes a lot of sense. It is, I think, a component of conspiracism. That's um, a huge part of the drive. The drive to kind of see conspiracies everywhere.
0: Not to tell you what to do with your podcast, but I do think that he would be a really interesting guest, and that you two, especially, would have a dynamic mm-hmm. conversation about a lot of things, but mm-hmm. particularly about mm-hmm. the intersections of your two books. So, one of the things yeah. that I loved, and I think I saw, I saw it first in like a, a piece you wrote. It was about how journalism, actually, I won't say saved your life, but like in some ways, like this ability to pursue facts to pursue truth and it invited you into a wider perspective hearing stories from different sides learning about you know the world and i just was so moved by that like the pursuit of of truth you know, there was a moment when you were just feeling so penned in and you were like, what am I going to do? And I just love writing. I love writing. And you kind of forged your path. You were like, I'll do it for free. I'll do it for free. And then someone hired you and then the next person hired you. And then, you know, the amazing thing is that we both worked at Huffington Post at the same time. We didn't interact (laughs) that much. I remember reading some of your, all of your stories and being so impressed. But, but, you know, Talk to me about what journalism represented to you in your in your story.
2: Well, you've always been very supportive and encouraging in my work, and I've always appreciated that and haven't even quite understood where it was coming from until we talked more recently and I learned more about your background. Part of the reason why I, I have a commitment or a desire to put everything out there and be honest and be vulnerable and put my cards on the table is because I do think there's truth. And I do think there's reality. If I thought, you know, there was no concrete reality or no real truth out there, you know, that is the cynics presupposition that invites you into a world of play acting and and shadows.
0: Well, I really just wanted you to talk about how journalism functioned in your life, almost as an exit strategy. But then it invited you into a whole new world that allowed you to kind of get perspective on where you had been and the world that you were living in and just the role of of telling stories, but also seeking truth.
2: The interesting part of that is that in college, which was when I first began to have my love of learning uh, stoked in me by a a literature professor, a Shakespeare professor. At that time, I thought of newspapers and journalism in much the same way we thought of politics, temporal, superficial, always changing and shifting and therefore not really worth my time or interest. And part of that was my religious background. Part of it was just sort of the young person's desire to write the great novel or to be the next Wordsworth or whatever. So it's, you know, a mix of those things, but yeah, I really looked down on journalism and I thought it was ugly and didn't want to do it. Then I taught high school for two years. As you said, I was suffocating in that world where everyone thought the same thing. I needed conflict. I needed different points of view. I knew that much. And then people that I sought advice from said, you know, write for a newspaper. So one of the things I did write was took their advice. And um, I think there's something in the book where I write something to the effect of, journalism has has been a bomb for my cloistered imagination because Mm. I lived in a world where we were so cut off from different points of view or experiences and your imagination not only becomes cloistered it becomes fevered not to mention stale uh, but very fear-driven I think and one of the things I've just seen over and over again is that yes it's uncomfortable to push out of your comfort zone it's awkward to walk up to people you don't know and start asking them questions. It's hard to dig into the sometimes endless feeling complexity of an issue. But when you do these things, it's really kind of a wonderful world that opens up to you rather than, you know, this dark, horrible place. Yeah. There's a lot of darkness in the world, but, moving out into it with curiosity and with love is how we extend the kingdom of God. I think I told my son this morning when I dropped him off for school, he's 15. I said, you've got, you know, a couple weeks of school left every day. Try to do something that pushes you out of your comfort zone. Try to do something that's a little scary. You know, I think that's Mm. just an important part of growing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I love journalism because you have an excuse to ask people questions. You have an excuse, yeah, yeah. you know, to follow information and say, "Oh, what, what is that?" You know, one of the things that I was very moved by and and disturbed by was how the kind of Trump phenomenon, you know, like you you kind of had had gone alongside, and, and you paint a picture of a family that is loves one another, but you also there's a moment when you just you 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 are all perceiving the Trump moment completely differently and you were yeah. raising the alarm raising the alarm and they were calling you terrible names uh and uh <laughs> and and you were you didn't behave always so well like taking up the the, the yard mm-hmm. sign and you know what i mean like it, right. it but but i just think that that's that's the world we're in right now where we 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 do have a phenomenon that i think you and i agree feels very precarious for our democracy and yet there are others who are exactly feel exactly the opposite and often they are aligned with evangelical um belief
2: my concerns i think uh were were several back in 2015 and 16 two of the most primary ones i brought up with my family were that Trump didn't he showed a disregard for democracy and history and sort of the architecture of our of our government and the way we uh, produce consensus through compromise deliberation and a rule-based system you know I I expressed all that but I wasn't the only one expressing that there were people from Ben Dominich's website and Ben himself you know people very very conservative very hard right who were saying these very same things so that wasn't unique but it just was interpreted to different degrees through a partisan lens rather than through a historical and constitutional non-ideological lens Uh, Mm -hmm. my concern was and and remains really the preservation of a political system in which all parties can present their interests and work together to a constructive compromise. That's my interest. It's not pro Democrat or pro Republican, but it was interpreted through a partisan lens because I was criticizing a Republican. The other concern I expressed was that Trump was encouraging the lawless in spirit to become lawless in practice, you know, on the right. But I also told you know, my family at the time, that will provoke a counter reaction in which some of the, the more radical elements on the left will be empowered and emboldened, and it will become a, a back and forth sort of dynamic. And I think we've seen that happen over the last several years. I think, you know, I don't know where the Republican primary is going, but I do get concerned about the ways in which Criticism of Republicans who are not Trump is (laughs) registered at the same level as criticisms of Trump. And I think even all criticisms of Trump are sometimes all too much at the same level. I think we need a discerning eye towards what's really important in terms of preserving our democracy and what is a partisan or ideological or moral disagreement that can be worked out through mm. that system that we need to focus on preserving. Yeah. One
0: of the things you you also talked about in your book was the president's provocation against journalists, which felt personal to you, that you felt personally yeah. threatened. So then the, there's that. And then also just, the, you know, your value on truth and the falsehoods that Trump was saying every day. I mean, it was really just like, it's shocking that it, that has become Permitted and normalized, but it was it was helpful for me to read it from your perspective. You know, I'm I'm like I'm a commie. You know, I mean, like you know, people don't take me like you know, I am you know, I'm not not really actually, I'm not at all. But but I'm viewed that way. You know, like you know, right? But I am curious. Like, who do you view as the audience for this book? Because for me, I felt like in some way. I was totally riveted, and because I know you, I, I felt personally invested. But I felt a little bit like, "Oh, I'm a voyeur into a community that is I don't that I'm almost like learning about. It's not my community. Do yeah. you feel like yeah. your community, or I don't know who you identify as your community now? But how mm-hmm. is this being received from the people? From your broader community that, you know, you mentioned childhood friends or who are the people who are who are reading this book or who would you like to read this
2: book? What I have seen in terms of response, and then I'll go to my sort of intended audience. But what I've seen in terms of response already is a pretty large number of people saying, this is my experience, too. And and you're. I've, I've had multiple people tell me, I feel seen through this. Mm. I feel mm. like now I'm not the only one. So I think there's some number of people who come from this world and are just not okay with where it's gone, but are not the type of person to, to just sort of throw up their hands or leave the church entirely. A lot of those types of people, a lot of mm-hmm. people trying to hold on to their faith and trying to hold on to their relationships but uh you know really really troubled my intended audience is obviously those people i think that's probably the primary audience because it's just it, it registers so strongly with them there's two other groups that i wrote it for though i mean i wrote it for uh evangelicals writ large because i don't expect people to think like me or agree with me on everything one thing i do hope that some evangelicals who are more conservative will consider is that there's this author, Jamie Smith, James K.A. Smith, who wrote a book called How to Inhabit Time. I think that came out last year. He talks about how evangelicals often have an aversion to considering the ways that their views, beliefs, and opinions are shaped over time and, and by forces outside of themselves that are not sort of God handing out the Ten Commandments a lot of evangelicals tend to think of their view of the world as hatched rather than formed. I think that's a helpful distinction. And so what I am hoping to invite those folks into is just a process of discovery and examination and thoughtful consideration of the ways that they've been formed. I think that's a great starting point for dialogue and for growth. And I think for, for people who are not evangelical or not religious at all, then I think this book, kind of like you said, is a glimpse behind the curtain. And I think what it does, hopefully, is produce some empathy and patience, because I think a lot of times people get really frustrated with evangelicals, often rightly so. But, you know, empathy and patience, and I say patience because if you encounter somebody who is trying to grow and interested in in growth and has some humility – but they're just not getting things that you think they should be getting or they're not where you want them to be. I think my book really shows how slow a process it is for someone to grow out of a culture in which they've been raised and how deeply embedded this stuff can be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really down there and, and there's so much you're just not even aware of.
0: Yeah. I think that that's really helpful. It's also interesting even at the very end and I was like, you know, you're frank and and real about like your struggles with faith, but then you, you still you still turn towards religious language. Uh, You still, Mm -hmm. like even today, you said extending the kingdom of God. Like there's, you still have Mm -hmm. that in you. And I think that, I think that that's also like really a positive that this is not like you're evolving as far as a political person, but also trying to figure out like, Mm -hmm. what do I really believe now? And how do I like continue to use the material that I was provided, but maybe shape it in an organic way to my life? And I think that that is really present in this book. And so it's not just like a political story. It's like a spiritual memoir. I was very moved by it and touched by it and found you, interestingly, incorporating some names like Richard Rohr, who would not have been a name that you had heard growing up. But, you know, Richard Rohr is a, mm-hmm. is a Franciscan um, priest, who's a, a beautiful thinker and very inspiring to many, um, including myself, but who you, you invite into kind of your broader influence now and are, are crafting a new, not only a new way of being in the world, but also perhaps a, a new way of believing in the world.
2: You know, I don't call myself a capital C conservative. I don't really call myself any of those things. But there is a conservatism that I believe in, a form of it. And that's building on what has come before and trying to glean what is valuable and to build on it and to preserve it while reforming and improving what is not ideal or what is not beneficial. So that's kind of how I think about using the materials of, of Christianity to continue searching for reality and truth, because I think reality is what is what we're talking about. When Christians say Jesus They're obviously talking about a creative force behind the world, but they're also talking about ultimate reality, or at least that's what I've taken it to mean. And so often, you know, religious language can really be used as a weapon or just sort of a tool of control. I'm not necessarily content to cede some of these terms to decay or to abuse,
0: I love that. That is a great place for us to conclude. John Ward is chief national correspondent at Yahoo News. His new book is titled Testimony Inside the Evangelical Movement that Failed a Generation. Go buy it. Read it. John, thanks so much for being with me today on State of Belief Radio.
2: Paul, you've really kind of blown me away with your enthusiasm and your passion, and I'm really grateful. Thank you.
0: And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's show. We need your help keeping State of Belief on the air. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week, where I'll be talking with Eric Ward, the president of Race Forward and one of the most interesting thinkers about America today. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on the State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.